With that said, we're going to continue. Uh, and I'm really excited because tonight we are con- considering the third or the second article uh, in the Apostles' Creed, which is really the center of the creed uh, and, and actually informs the rest of it. Uh, it's purposeful that it's central because Jesus is the center of everything. Uh, and we're going to consider that beautiful opening statement, which is really a summary of what we will consider as we move through that second article. And, this, and the statement is, I believe in Jesus Christ, his only son, our Lord. As uh, we have been doing through this series, I think that it is awesome for us uh, to read the creed together, uh, for this is not uh, an empty ideology, uh, but this is a living confession uh, where we actually enter in uh, to that beautiful communal voice that declares, I believe, which means to belong to something bigger than ourselves. Uh, This is not simply doctrine. I believe that this is a statement of what actually brings us into that living, vital relationship with Christ. And this is the most concise statement of faith uh, written in church history and as I've stated uh, week in and week out, this is universally accepted both by Protestants and Catholics uh, as a summary of the kind of the essence of the Christian doctrine, and it's an old, old confession. So we are confessing with the church uh, from its foundation these words. Remember once again, the Catholic church just means universal church. I still get emails. So just the Catholic church is the one true church at all times and all places. Okay, so uh, let's read these words together. I believe in God, the Father Almighty, the maker of heaven and earth. I believe in Jesus Christ, his only Son, our Lord, who was conceived by the Holy Ghost, born of the Virgin Mary, suffered under Pontius Pilate, was crucified, died, and buried. He descended into hell. The third day he arose again from the dead. He ascended into heaven and sits on the right hand of God, the Father Almighty. From there he shall come to judge the living and the dead. I believe in the Holy Ghost, the Holy Catholic Church, the communion of saints, the forgiveness of sins, the resurrection of the body, and the life everlasting. Amen. And Father, we come to you tonight in the name of your son, Jesus. For Jesus, you said you are the way, the truth, and the life, and that no one comes to the Father except through you. You are the centerpiece of this creed. You are its focus, for we only know the Father through the Son, and we receive the Holy Spirit as a gift from the Son. And so we turn to you, recognizing that you must be our center that if we do not preach the name of Jesus, we are not preaching. That if we do not live fully for you as God looking at us through human eyes, a revelation of what God is truly like. For the word became flesh, and in your freedom, you entered into your own creation. The creator became a creature and continues to be a man for us, for eternity. Lord Jesus, I pray that you would be lifted up tonight. You said, if I be lifted up, I will draw all people to myself. And you were lifted up on the cross 2,000 years ago. But we continue to preach Christ and him crucified. For we are to declare your death until you come again. For we also know that death could not keep you, 
for you conquered sin and death and the dominions of darkness. For on the third day, you rose again. And because you are risen, we can say Jesus is Lord. And so we declare you as Lord. And I ask right now humbly that you would open up my heart and my mind, as well as all my brothers and sisters who are here, that we might receive what it is the Spirit has to say. Speak to us, for your servants are listening. We pray this in your name. And all of God's people said, amen. Amen. Well, we come to this centerpiece of the creed. If we can get up that first slide. I believe in Jesus Christ, his only son, our Lord. I want to consider tonight, just we'll focus in on Philippians chapter 2, verses 5 through 11. But I want to just begin by restating that sentence. I believe in the perfect man, for Jesus is his human name. Jesus, the Christ, or the Messiah, or the King of Israel. Uh, Christ is not his last name. That is his title. Who is also the eternal son, speaking of his deity. He is the only son. We are sons and daughters by adoption and the sovereign Lord of our lives. This is really a subtext for what comes after. But this focuses on something that is so important, that what we are considering when we consider the creed is not an empty ideology, but we are considering a living personality. It's not a focus upon a doctrine. It literally focuses our hearts and our minds upon a name, a name that is above all names. Christianity is inescapably and essentially Christocentric. Jesus must be our center. And without a center, we literally have no equilibrium. I think one of the great tragedies of the church today is that it is losing its center. Jesus is increasingly becoming the unwelcome guest in his own house. We spin our wheels talking about selective sanctification when what we need to do is come again and again to the one who is the great revelation of who God is and what God is like. If you want to know what God is like, you look at Jesus. Jesus said in John chapter 14, verse 6, he said, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. I love it because he says no one comes to me except those that the Father draws. But then he follows that up with, if I be lifted up, I will draw all people to myself. You see the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit, the Holy Spirit who's sent to convict and convince the world of sin and of righteousness and of judgment. The Father, Son, and Holy Spirit together drawing humanity to the one God revealed in three persons. In Jesus, as our center, we can say this, I know the Father through the Son, and I have received his spirit, because he said, it's good that I go to the Father, for if I go to the Father, I will send to you another helper. You see, the Son is the center of everything. Jesus, in Jesus, God has revealed himself and given himself to us without reserve. I love Ian's testimony, just the power of the gospel in just a couple minutes of the way that Christ can radically transform a human life. When you recognize that the God of the universe, the one who spoke in the universe, leapt into existence, that that same God loves you as if you were the only person to love. It's profound truth. It's the truth that revolutionized my life when I gave my life to Christ 19 years ago. By the way, Darcy and I just celebrated our 21-year anniversary 
this last week, and we are a living testimony uh, to the transformation, thank you, to the transformation of the gospel, because neither of us were believers when we got married, and God revealed himself to us through his son. Jesus got a hold of our hearts at different times, two years apart from each other, but both of us fell so radically in love with Jesus that we found that we couldn't do anything but serve him for the rest of our lives. Not that it's without difficulty, it comes with much difficulty, but we consider it the joy to suffer for the name of Jesus. We have to remind ourselves of why we do what we do, and the way that we do that is come back to the foot of the cross and look at our loving Savior, who reveals to us how good God is. Everything we say about God must have its anchor in the incarnation, the word become flesh. I think it's important for us tonight to remember this, that the scripture never declares what God is like apart from what he has done. And the center of God's activity is his movement of grace toward you and Jesus. It's the beauty of the gospel. Well, when we're going to consider tonight, uh, and what we'll do over the next few weeks as we look in more detail um, at the incarnation, at the word become flesh, the, the life of Jesus, the suffering of Jesus, the crucifixion of Jesus, the resurrection of Jesus, the exaltation of Jesus, and even the final judgment that comes through Jesus, uh, we're going to look at different passages that kind of open up the person of Christ to us. And tonight, I want to consider a very profound passage. It's Philippians chapter 2, verses 5 through 8. And this passage before us, it uniquely unfolds the incarnation. Uh, because what it does is it allows us to actually enter into the mind of Christ. And because of that, we literally are treading on holy ground. We do well to remember that this is a privilege given to us not to satisfy our curiosity. Again and again, I've been saying this throughout our study of the creed. The creed is not to give us a more profound understanding of doctrine, but it is to increase the depth of relationship that you have with the Christ who is here. For Jesus said, when two or more gather in my name, I am there, what? In the midst of them. It's cool to have all of us together in one space. I know there were many that couldn't make it tonight. Uh, because they just didn't want to go to church at night, but that's okay. Uh, you know the beauty of this room? Do you guys know the history of this space? Uh, it was once a, a prison. No, I'm just joking. <laughs> it, was, <laughs> it was built, actually, uh, in the 50s by the founder of Multnomah, Dr. John Mitchell, who is one of the great Bible expositors of his day, uh, in fact, probably one of the first like, megachurch pastors. Uh, he had a congregation in Portland in the 50s. I think it was well over 2,000 people. And so he just wanted to build a large warehouse. The story that I heard, I don't know if this is true, is that he just said, build it so it literally is a warehouse in case it doesn't work, and then we can sell it off as a warehouse. Uh, but there's pictures of him preaching to just the room packed, and there's actually a balcony even up behind us. Uh, so it's really an honor to preach from the same place that... Uh, a great man of God and a great, a great preacher who changed a lot of lives, uh, a man who many believed had the entire Bible memorized. So I don't know if that's true. I love legends. <laughs> I hope I have, that legend goes out about me. Hyperbole is one of my favorite things. I hope someday grandchildren say, you know, I heard Pastor Josh White had the whole Bible memorized. It's not true, but it may be spoken of <laughs> by someone someday. <laughs> And every time it's said, Jesus will just be like, that's so not true. 
So let's consider this passage in Philippians uh, chapter 2, verses 5 through 11. First of all, we're going to begin with the eternal son. Three statements that were made in the Apostles' Creed was that he is the man, Jesus Christ, uh, the one and only son of God, and, and that he is Lord our Lord. Uh, we're going to begin with where Philippians begins, which is begins with the eternal son in verses five through six. And it says this, and really this is a poem in Philippians. Uh, it says, have this mind among yourself. This is very profound to me, which is yours in Christ Jesus. The mind of Christ is available to us. Uh, and what Paul is establishing is how is it that we should think? How should we live? How should we model our lives after Jesus? And he begins to give us insight into the incarnation, into the profound revelation of who Jesus is. And he begins with Jesus as he was before he was Jesus. He was not always Jesus. He was always the eternal son. And he says, which is yours in Christ Jesus, who though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped. Though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped. Let me just state a few things here. Because what this gives us insight into is that the eternal son, this begins to build upon that, that understanding that we cannot think of the one God apart from a Trinitarian understanding. That one God is revealed to us in three persons. That God is a community within himself. That God himself has communion within himself. That you and I exist as the overflow of the communion of love between the eternal father and the eternal son and the spirit that proceeds from them. John chapter 1, verse 18, why do I always state that we cannot talk about the Father unless we begin with the Son? Well, John chapter 1, verse 18 gives us that very insight. No one has ever seen God, the only God, that is Jesus, who is at the Father's side. He has made him known. Jesus has come to make the Father known. Last week, we considered the statement that God the Father Almighty, the creator or maker of heaven and earth, that the heavens declare his glory, but it is Jesus that is a revelation of his love. You don't look at the trees and the mountains and come to the conclusion that God is on your worst stinking day is crazy about you. You come to that through a revelation of who Jesus is. Jesus came to reveal who God is. Colossians chapter 1, verse 15 says, he is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn over all creation. Colossians chapter 1, verse 19 says, for in him all the fullness of God was pleased to dwell. Colossians chapter 2, verse 3, in him who are hidden all the treasures of wisdom and knowledge. Colossians chapter 2, verse 9, for in him the whole fullness of deity dwells bodily. What we can say about the eternal son is that he is not created by God, but he is the one God revealed to us in the second person of the Godhead. And that mystery is something that the writers of the New Testament, inspired by the Holy Spirit, are always keeping in tension. For Paul to even write this uh, would be considered blasphemous to the Jewish mind. But Paul is saying he was in the form of God and did not count equality with God. What does it say? a thing to be grasped. What does that tell you? That Jesus 
being one with the Father, that the one God is revealed to us in three persons, is not something that can be what? Fully comprehended. There's a mystery in it. That's why I said anyone that tries to portray the Trinity like an egg is doing an incredible disservice to the mystery and the profound nature of God. Let me just share with you guys a a quote about this, because I think this is so helpful. As we were doing the first few weeks around the fatherhood of God, it was very important to me to keep it anchored in the person of Jesus, because the moment you disconnected conversations about the attributes or the characteristics or the nature of divinity, it becomes very abstract, and it does not touch the heart, and it just becomes confusing. You're like, okay, God is omniscient. Oh, great, he knows everything. That's kind of weird. Or God's omnipresent. Oh, great, now he's a voyeur. Or name name it, he's omnipotent, he has all power. That's kind of scary. But if we think that he knows everything about you because he cares about you, because he wants to know you personally, if we think that he's present because he's nearer to you than you are to your own thoughts because he wants to be in relationship with you, if we think that he, his power is revealed to us through his own self-limitation without ever changing his internal character by entering into our dilemma, our brokenness, all of a sudden the attributes of God become quite profound and moving. Still a mystery, but moving. But I've been reading this great uh, commentary. It's a new translation. Um, We're going to be doing Galatians in the new year, and so I've already started studying for it, and I'm reading uh, this this new translation of Martin Luther's commentary on Galatians, and it is amazing. And (laughs) I was thinking about this because there was a few times in the previous sermons where I'm like, man, I got into some kind of thick philosophical areas. I don't know if that was very helpful, Lord. And then I read this. This is so good. This is a direct translation of Luther on Galatians around uh, around understanding the nature of God. The subtitle written by Luther himself is A Guiding Principle. Abstain from speculating about the nature of God. I'm like, dang it. Really? And then he goes on to say... Therefore, with respect to justification, keep it clear that whenever any one of us must fight against the law, sin, and death, and all other evils, there is no other God that can be known except this God in human flesh. It is in Jesus that God defines himself as he really is within himself, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. That's what I need us to understand Matthew 11, verses 25 through 27, Jesus, this incredible prayer that Jesus lifts up. He says, at that time, Jesus declared, I thank you, Father, Lord of heaven and earth, that you have hidden these things from the wise and understanding and revealed them to little children. Yes, Father, for such was your gracious will. All things have been handed over to me by my Father, and no one knows the Son except the Father And no one knows the Father except the Son and anyone to whom the Son chooses to reveal him. So let me ask you the question. Who has the Son chosen to reveal the Father to? Well, what are the verses that come right after that? I'll tell you who the Son comes to reveal himself to and reveal the Father to. You who are that labor and are heavy laden you that need rest. Jesus says, take my yoke upon you and learn from me, for I am gentle 
and lowly in heart, and you will find rest for your souls, for my yoke is easy and my burden is light. Jesus is ready to reveal the Father to anyone that recognizes the weariness of trying to maintain control of their lives in a world like we live in. He resists the proud, but he gives grace to the humble, to those who are broken, to those who are lost. That is who is called. To those who are sick, he says, I have come to seek and save that which is lost. I have come to bring healing to the sick. Those who are well have no need of a savior. And so I think that if you recognize this, then you can recognize the voice of the Savior tonight, that he is the revealer as well as the revealed, that he is the giver as well as the gift. It is Jesus who pulls back the curtain on God's love. Whatever God is like, he is like Jesus. That has to be true, or we're wasting our time here. So he's the eternal son, He's always been the eternal son. He has not always been Jesus. So we can say that Jesus is fully God, but he is also, if we can go to the next slide, the perfect man. And here is the mystery. The God, the unchanging God changed, but he emptied himself by taking the form of a servant. And just so you know, that word emptied, that's a Greek word, kenosis. It's a mysterious word. And People, theologians wrestle, what does it mean that he emptied himself? What kind of power did he give up? How could he be unchanging and change? And, and I think that we shouldn't worry ourselves with speculation about what it means that Jesus emptied himself, that the eternal son, become, the word become flesh, emptied himself. We said, he did say, Father, I am ready to receive back the glory that I had with you before I came into the world. But we can see that the emptying has to do with what follows, by taking the form of what? A servant being born in the likeness of men and being found in human form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. Hebrews 13 verse eight says, Jesus Christ is the same yesterday and today and forever. But John one says that the word became flesh. So how do we reconcile this reality? He is the perfect man. He is not just fully God, but he is fully man. And when we think about kenosis, divine emptying, it's not helpful to try to figure out the mystery. We have to look at what he became. And in Jesus Christ, God became or has become what he never was before, a human being. The creator has become a creature, and the eternal has become time. He entered into time. The creator entered into his creation. He became a creature. And what this tells us about God is that he is the self-to-move God who is transcendentally and majestically free to become one with us in our creaturely existence, if I could borrow from T.F. Torrance, to enter into the depths of our misery and our alienation while remaining he who he always is as the mighty living God and who is therefore perfectly free and able to redeem and save us from bondage and degradation. In other words, God became flesh. It is in his freedom. He did not change in his character, in his purposes, in his plans, but in his freedom, he entered into the human bondage of our existence. Not just identification with our humanity, but identification with our lowest point, our sin. 
This is a profound truth because he didn't just take on the form of a man. He took on the form of a servant. The son of God, the eternal son of God, God became flesh. It is fair to say that he took upon himself the frailties and limitations of human existence. This is a revelation of what kind of God we worship. It is a God who loves us with an everlasting love. The God who is complete in himself and has no need of anything chose to want us, chose to not exist without us. So profound. It makes my heart be overwhelmed with just gratitude. First John chapter 4, verse 10 says, And this is love, not that we have loved God, but that he loved us and sent his son to be a propitiation for our sins. Jesus said the Son of Man did not come to be served, but to serve. His kingdom is an upside-down kingdom. He gave himself away. He didn't just enter into our humanity. He entered into the lowest point, and he took the form of a servant. And it says that he didn't just take the form of a servant, but being found in human form, he humbled himself. The creator of the universe, the one who spoke and the universe leapt into existence, the God who sustains everything by a word, who is perpetually speaking into existence all that is, is the same one who entered into his creation and actually took the rebellion of his own creatures, the creatures who he should have just wiped off and started over, If I was God, that's what I would have done. When I consider my own life, I'm like, why would you give me another chance? But he is the God of yes. So profound. He humbled himself and he became obedient to the point of death. P.T. Forsyth wrote a really profound sermon on this passage called The Divine Emptying. And he said, the center of the incarnation, that is the word become flesh, God becoming human being, is where Christ placed the focus of his work. It's not at the beginning of his life, but it's at its end. It's not the manger, but the cross. The key to the incarnation is not the cradle, but it is in the cross. This is why Paul says, we preach Christ crucified. And let me just state this, because it says here, I love this, in Philippians. It says, in being found in human form, he humbled himself, It says, what, humble yourself, and in due time the Lord will exalt you. But none of us have to be humbled in the way that Jesus was humbled. Remember what David said about about the righteous man? He goes, I have yet to see a righteous man accursed. Well, he didn't live to see Jesus Christ, the only one who was ever righteous, because Jesus, the righteous one, became a curse so that we could be redeemed. And this is why it says he became obedient to the point of death. I want you to think about that. The one who is one with the Father, the one who all things were made through him and for him, he was willing to enter into that creation. And the one part of creation that is in absolute rebellion against him, all creation is groaning, waiting for its redemption because we have made such a mess of it. We're the problem in creation. And yet Jesus says, But you're the one I love the most. You're the reason I created everything. I put you at the center. I have given you dominion, and I am going to restore that original purpose, and it's going to be even better than before the fall. Profound. And the author of life, the one who is life, he died. Love died. The author of life died. Even death on the cross. 
Romans 8, verse 32 says this. He who did not spare his own son, but gave him up for us all, how will he not also with him graciously give us all things? How much does God love you? How extravagant, how outrageous is his love for you? Well, in the words of Paul, it suggests, if I may overstate what Paul is saying, that God loves us more than he loves himself. Now, I don't actually believe that in the fullest sense of that. But what Romans 8:32 tells us is that God gave up what is dearest to him, his son. As I stated before, I wouldn't give up my son for any of you. I wouldn't give up my son for all of you. If it was, you must lay down your son's life and you will save the entire city of New York, I'd say, let it burn. Because I don't understand the love of God. His love is an alien love a self-giving love where he gives up what is dearest for that which is against him. While we were yet enemies of God, while we were yet dead in our sins, Christ Jesus died for us. That is a mystery. It's so profound. We don't deserve it. The perfect man, and the reason I say the perfect man, he is the eternal son, but I believe that the divine emptying gives us an incredible insight into something about Jesus's humanity that he is the God-man, but I think often we have wrong ideas. And we're going to consider this in greater detail in a couple weeks. But the idea is, is that, well, it isn't fair because he was still God, and therefore he was kind of like Superman. But I don't believe that is the case. I believe that Jesus entered fully into the weakness of human flesh. And what we saw Jesus doing when he did signs and wonders and miracles when he turned water into wine, he was functioning under the absolute and total authority of the Father. He only did those things which pleased the Father. What we saw in Jesus was not God working through human flesh, but we saw man as God intended man to be. And this is why Jesus is both a revelation of what God is like, but he is also a revelation of what we ought to be like. So he is both the God who speaks to us through human lips, but he is also the human ears that re reveals what it looks like to listen and hear from God and to be influenced by his power. What I believe it is saying there is that Jesus, in the, and when he humbled himself, is that he placed himself in full, in, in full submission to the Father, even to the point of death. We often think of submission or subordination as an ugly word, in our culture today, that is something, I mean, I can't tell you how many times I've done a wedding where I will literally have uh, someone say, please don't read the passage that says, wives, submit to your husbands. Uh, and I'm like, okay, you don't like that passage? And they don't like it, not because of what the scripture is saying, but because what of what, how culture has shaped our minds around the concept of authority and the concept of submission. Because submission in Scripture is the beautiful trusting that comes out of, us, out of that fullness of love. Ephesians, we always forget that Ephesians 5.21 says, therefore submit to one another out of reverence to the Lord. Before it says, wives, submit to your husbands. But we don't like the concept of submission. Men don't like to submit to other people. 
Wives don't want to submit to husbands, but Jesus submitted fully to the Father because he trusted the Father with his life. He was even willing to lay down his life for the joy that was set before him. And what was the joy that was set before him? What was the full revelation of, the father, of submission to the Father's will? You were the joy that was set before him. And the Father's will was that through the Son, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, together in the agony of the cross, the roles were different. But think of the Father grieving the loss of the Son and the Spirit groaning over the pain that the Son experienced as a Spirit-filled man. It's a mystery. We can't fully understand it, but this is what we are told. We now know that God is like Jesus. And if he is, he is a good God. Because if at the heart, at the back of the universe, is like the gentle heart that broke upon the cross, he can have my heart without qualification and without reservation. I always like to quote Stanley Jones and say that if Jesus is not the son of God, if he is an invention of men, then I would have to worship the ones who invented him because he's so beautiful. He is the perfect man. He is not simply the eternal son of God, but he is the God man. The eternal son has become, he didn't just become a man 2,000 years ago and then went back to being the eternal son. He is always the eternal son, but he will continue to be for all of eternity the God man. We will have Jesus for all of eternity, God speaking to us through human lips. I think that's important for us to understand, or the resurrection makes no sense. If Jesus just goes back to being a part of the God who is spirit, then we have a very misinformed gospel. Finally, because he is the eternal son, because he is the perfect man, because his perfect humanity played itself out through the giving of his life, a full revelation of the Father's heart toward you and I. He is the sovereign Lord. Therefore, God has exalted him. The exaltation is speaking of the resurrection. He has exalted him and bestowed on him. Jesus didn't just raise from the dead. The gospel doesn't just stop with resurrection. It continues with ascension. He ascended to the right hand of the Father. And it was through the ascension that he said, go and wait for the coming of the Holy Spirit. But it says, therefore God has highly exalted him and bestowed on him the name. There is no other name under heaven by which one can be saved. Bestowed on him the name that is above every name, so that at the name of Jesus, every knee should bow. In heaven and on earth and under the earth. Notice that just every single being, seen and unseen, will recognize the lordship of Jesus. Jesus said, if you don't worship me, the rocks will cry out. Absolute and total authority over all that is. And every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. The resurrection discloses that Jesus is Lord. And there is salvation in no one else, for there is no other name under heaven given among men by which we must be saved, said Peter in Acts chapter 4, verse 12. In order for Jesus to be the mediator between God and man, he must both be God and man. And as the God-men, we confess that Jesus is Lord. Now, here's the profound thing. If we go back to the creed, we see that this is our statement, that we believe in Jesus Christ, his only Son, our Lord. And to confess Jesus as Lord 
means to acknowledge him as the one who shares his identity with Israel's God, Yahweh, which means Lord. In the New Testament, Jesus is revealed as the God of the Old Testament. Isn't that profound? That he is Lord. But what does that mean for us? Because this is where I want to close tonight. Because the Lordship of Christ is so essential for us. We must get our heads around this because too many people accept Jesus as their Savior. But this passage tells us that whether he's your Savior or not, he is everybody's Lord. And for us who are his children, Lordship is not an option. That means when you confess, as it says here, because if you confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. The most simple proclamation of the early church, probably what, what was the foundation of this entire creed was just those, those three words, Jesus is Lord. And to say Jesus is Lord is to actually proclaim the entire gospel because you are saying that Jesus, that is the man, Jesus of Nazareth, who became a revelation of God in the flesh, the God-man who laid down his life for the good of humanity upon the cross of Calvary, that on the third day rose from the dead, that after 40 days of revealing himself to his followers, ascended to the right hand of the Father and has sent his Holy Spirit to indwell those who put their faith in him, that from the very beginning, that it is the name of Jesus that saves to be a follower of Jesus is not to just simply say, I believe that Jesus is who he said he is. It is to actually trust your life to his. To say Jesus is Lord is to say, I am no longer ruler of my own life. But the problem is, is that we continue to take our own lives into our own hands. We continue to push Jesus out of the center and put ourselves in that place. And then we try to figure out how to follow Jesus by doing good things here and there, but what we need is that living, vital relationship that comes from total dependence upon him. He loves you so much, he laid down his life for you when you were an enemy. To say Jesus is Lord is to recognize your need for him, that you will always be the worst master of your life. We don't like to submit, but Jesus revealed what perfect humanity looks like. And we must submit to his, his rule, his authority over our lives. And we can do that now in the joy of following hard after him, empowered by his Holy Spirit, or we will do it in the future, but there is no escaping his lordship. He is the ruler of all. Jesus is Lord. We need him. He is our center, and he loves you. He is the revelation of what God is like. There is no God behind the back of Jesus. If we want to know what the Father is like, we look to him. If we want to receive the Holy Spirit, we confess him. One God, three persons, that Jesus is the face and the name above all other names. Amen? Let's pray.